Hello and welcome to the Herbert Smith Freehills Capital Markets Podcast. This episode is part of a six-part series looking at transactional trends through a legal lens. I'm your host for this episode, Yuji Huang, and I have with me today corporate partner Mike Flockhart, corporate crime and investigations partner Susanna Cogman, and U.S. Securities partner Dinesh Banani. We are aiming high in this episode and talking about cannabis. Mike, what is the big deal about cannabis lately? Indeed, Yugi, it does seem like this is a topic that is cropping up everywhere. Uh, the value of cannabis-related M&A deals grew 875% in 2018 compared to the year before, according to merger market statistics. Uh, contributing to that growth is Canada's move to legalise cannabis for recreational purposes. Uh, it has been legal for medical reasons for several years. And what is making up most of that uh, growth in deal activity? In terms of types of deals we're seeing, it's the same as in any other industry or sector. We're seeing M&A, capital raisings and other types of financing. Uh, There's been a lot of interest in the the retail, beverage and consumer sector, as well as some interest from from big tobacco. Uh, Big Pharma has to date seemed more hesitant to get involved in the sector outside of those products that have uh, medical use. I see. Uh, Now, you mentioned a second ago Canada. Is Canada the key jurisdiction where things are changing significantly? I think things are changing um, in many places around Mm. the world. There's a a range of countries with different approaches, some in which uh, uh, recreational use of cannabis has been legal for some time, uh, like like the Netherlands, uh, and others where a a de-emphasis or decriminalisation approach, whether through uh, active change in law or just prosecutorial discretion, has led to use becoming more widespread. Mm. But I think Canada is the country where, in terms of sweeping legalisation, there has been the greatest change. Uh, Also worthy of note, I think, is the US, where the US Farm Bill passed in December 2018 effectively removes hemp from the list of federally controlled substances. Um, Dinesh, perhaps you can share some more insight on that. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I, yeah, I think the U.S. Farm Bill, which was Mike said passed in December of 2018, um, it effectively removes hemp from the federally controlled substance list. Um, and hemp for purposes of United States regulation is essentially cannabis, which contains less than 0.3% THC, which is the active ingredient um, in cannabis, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, cannabis itself and cannabis oil and other related products, which is really the, the products that um, people are more interested in, um, have not really been made legal in the United States under federal law, although there are uh, a number of states which have passed legislation which have helped to legalize either the recreational or medicinal use of cannabis in some shape or form. I think you now have about 33 states which have which have adopted some legislation. Um, so as a result of the patchwork of regulation between federal and state law, um, this is of a classic situation where uh, intermediaries uh, in capital markets transactions, particularly investment banks, mm-hmm. are going to be uh, wary because um, they're not going to be necessarily comfortable dealing with a business which um, may conflict with um, the sale of securities and or even illegal activity in certain states. Um, so as a result, what you're seeing right now is cannabis-focused Canadian issuers raising a lot of money, um, looking at the U.S. capital markets. Um, we've got you know cannabis-focused U.S. listed companies as well. And uh, much of the capital markets activity around those issuers has been um, conducted by smaller independent investment banks, um, Canadian uh, investment banks, 
uh, less from the the larger bulge bracket investment bank players. I do think those um, participants are going to start coming into the market. So, um, but I do think you're going to need more legislation in the United States. But I think the the direction of travel, at least, is quite clear. I see. I see. So, so it sounds like there's been a lot of really exciting developments across the pond. Um, notwithstanding that, though, recreational cannabis, as as far as I know, is still illegal in the UK. What does that mean for potential buyers or investors or just other counterparties in the UK? Susanna, I understand this is something that you've been looking at quite a bit recently. Yes. So for cannabis-related businesses in the UK, so for example, businesses involved in licensed industrial hemp, uh, medicinal cannabis, uh, cannabidiol, there's a fairly complex uh, web of regulations to navigate um, because, as you say, uh, cannabis and various forms thereof, THC, etc., um, remain controlled drugs under the Misuse of Drugs Act. Um, but really, where we're looking at corporate uh, transactional activity relating to Canadian or US recreational cannabis businesses, the key piece of legislation to be concerned about is less the predicates of drugs laws, uh, but more the impact of the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, um, often called POCA, which is our bit of, sort of money laundering legislation. So POCA broadly prohibits being concerned in any way in a transaction which facilitates, for example, the retention or use or control of uh, proceeds of crime of what's called criminal property. Um, and under POCA, the proceeds of crime is any known or suspected benefit arising from any criminal conduct. And that means uh, conduct which is illegal in the UK. Um, and it also means the proceeds of conduct which occurs overseas might be lawful there, but if it had occurred in the UK, would be a criminal offence. Mm -hmm. So acquiring property derived from conduct which is lawful overseas, but which would be viewed as a drugs offence here in the UK, can engage poker. And so let me ask about um, those the, the words that you just said, acquiring property derived from conduct. What does that mean in terms of the trigger for the offense under POCA? Is it the making of the investment? Well, technically, no. So the use of clean property, even if it might ultimately be used for a criminal purpose, uh, isn't money laundering. It, it might in some other spheres engage other forms of criminality, but, but, but not in this case. Um, but property becomes criminal property when someone obtains an interest as a result of or in connection with criminal conduct. So um, thinking about it in the cannabis context, the revenues of that recreational cannabis business might be viewed as criminal property for poker purposes, um, although it's fair to say that the sort of hypothetical transposition of the Canadian conduct into the UK in order to apply that UK test is not straightforward, particularly given the different um, licensing frameworks in play. So it's really getting the benefit of that business. Um, and so certainly dividends moving out of Canada and into the UK and derived from that recreational business look problematic. Mm -hmm. There's also a fairly live debate about whether the securities issued by the cannabis businesses are themselves criminal property um, for poker purposes. And that depends a little bit upon the, mm -hmm. the, the exact nature of the, um, the business that we're looking at in any given case. Okay. Uh, now, I've heard um, 
that there are certain limited exceptions、um, for conduct that may be illegal in the UK, but but conduct which is legal in the country where it occurs.、Um, Would those exceptions be something that、uh, market participants could rely on、um, in transactions involving cannabis?、Uh, the short answer is no.、Um, so I think you're thinking of what's sometimes called the Spanish bullfighter exception. Yes, yes,、um, exactly. But where we're talking about the substantive money laundering offences, like being involved in a money laundering arrangement, that defence only helps if you have lawful overseas conduct where the corresponding UK offences. Would result in a maximum sentence of twelve months or less, so effectively non-serious offences,、mm. um, and the corresponding drugs offences relating to cannabis are serious offences, punishable by more than twelve months,、um, and so that doesn't、uh, help us here.、Um, There is, of course,、um, potentially the ability under poker to seek what's called appropriate consent or a defence against money laundering in relation to conduct that would otherwise constitute、uh, a money laundering offence.、Um, so that would be a potential defence that you could play in.、Mm-hmm. Um, but seeking consent does raise some additional complications, particularly for financial institutions. Um, where it's their clients' conduct they're reporting, and that's really quite apart from the question of what the NCA's response would be to the、um, to the consent request. So it's it's not necessarily a sort of、uh, straightforward way through, but it will certainly be worth、um, thinking about in any given、uh, context. I see. And, and sorry, what what's the NCA for those of us who who don't know? <laughs> I'm sorry, it's、uh, the National Crime Agency, which is、um, the UK's financial intelligence unit and which receives reports of suspected money laundering and、uh, gives appropriate consent、um, in in some cases. Susanna, is there a read across here to something we see in the in the UK M and A world quite a lot, which is when a buyer is acquiring an asset, they become aware of some technical breach of, of environmental regulations or some activity that would have been a breach. Of UK environmental regulations had it had it occurred here,、um, and they they simply seek clearance. They wait. I think it's seven days, and if they haven't、um, heard back from Poker, they can take the view that they can go ahead.、Um, that, that's a very tried and test, tested route in in UK M and A. I think market participants are quite comfortable that that's not the kind of activity that Poker are are, are seeking to restrict.、Um, so. Uh, what you're describing is exactly the same sort of consent mechanism that gives you the defence and allows you to proceed with the transaction after the relevant notice period has expired or, or where you have consent. So it's, it's the same statutory mechanism.、Um, I think the challenge is it's one thing doing a one-off transaction and seeking consent, particularly、uh, to something which is a sort of technical infringement, and there's no reason why the UK authorities would wish to block the transaction. Um, in the cannabis space, if you're, for example, an institution with an ongoing relationship with the entity or client that you're reporting for having been involved in overseas cannabis businesses,、um, or where perhaps there's less、um, clarity over what the、uh, view of the authorities would be in respect of、um, cannabis generally,、uh, it's a little bit more. Complex.、Um, so、uh, I think there's a range of views in in the market at the moment as to whether people are comfortable proceeding on a sort of consent type basis, or whether actually for regulatory and other reasons、um, it will be better to be in a position where you're comfortable that your activities are、mm-hmm. uh, are, are lawful without having to rely on that defence. Thanks, thanks, Susanna.、Um, 
Before we uh, go back to kind of um, more of the capital markets territory, is there anything else that you want to mention um, with respect to POCA or money laundering more generally that financial institutions um, may be interested in knowing about? I think the, the only thing really to flag is that we've been talking about the UK position, but this is an area where different jurisdictions have some quite different mm-hmm. approaches, uh, both under money laundering laws, but actually also under their predicate drugs offences. So even within the EU, although there's some commonality in the legislative framework, again, both on drugs and on money laundering at EU level, the question of whether investment in a cannabis business is an Mm offence can, and in our experience, does vary from member state to member state. Um, So it's important to think through which jurisdiction's laws might be engaged by any given transaction um, and take local advice uh, as appropriate, because it is uh, it is criminal offences that we're talking about here. So one uh, wants yeah. to be quite careful about the risk position. Absolutely. Thank you. And now, what does this all mean for capital markets transactions? Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, um, sort of as a segue to Susanna's point, I think uh, the concerns in the United States around um, intermediating transactions uh, in this industry um, probably not as acute as as, as, a, as a proceeds of crime act situation. They're still sort of somewhat present when you go on a state by state basis. So, um, I think a lot of the investment banks, like I said before, are, are wary of dealing with cannabis issuers if they feel like they're going to be violating the laws of a particular state. Um, as a result, Canada is essentially kind of currently the the nexus point at which you're seeing a lot of this activity. Um, the depth of trading, I think, among Canadian issuers in the Canadian Stock Exchange and the Toronto Stock Exchange will mm-hmm. will increase, I think. So I think for the time being, you'll see a lot of the, the, the interest and activity focused there. Um, having said that, um, you know, we as a firm, for example, are receiving an uh, increasing number of inquiries from uh, global asset managers mm-hmm. uh, about this business. And so there's definitely going to be um, more and more interest. I mean, if you're seeing the buy side increasingly becoming interest, it's only a matter of time before investment banks and the sell side um, are going to have to participate more actively in this market. Um, and then the question is just going to be, um, you know, sort of where, where does it all end up, especially if the United States doesn't adopt some sort of similarly sweeping legislation the way the way Canada has. Um, I think there's two points that are um, interesting to monitor in the next 12 months. One is the Canadian um, issuers. Um, there's been a lot of press over the last few months about how they're uh, Stock prices have just been going through the roof and and reaching all time highs, um, and at some point there's going to be there's going to be a, a come down, and when that happens, inevitably people are going to start looking at the disclosure of some of these issuers and whether there was a sufficient disclosure about regulation mm-hmm. and yeah. where certain things were allowed and weren't allowed. And not to say that that's going to be the reason why an investor could sue a Canadian issuer, but certainly um, it's going to get more focus if, if there's yeah. A, yeah. A, a bubble that's popped. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I would say is to tie it around M&A activity, um, that's probably the route in which you'll see um, investment banks and others participate in this market initially. If you have large uh, pharmaceutical or mm. tobacco companies buying cannabis-related businesses, 
um, inevitably there are going to need to be issues around how much do we need to disclose about the cannabis-related business from a larger corporate conglomerate, um, how much are the proceeds being used for that, mm -hmm. and then there's just going to be um, you know, related issues around um, if the proceeds are in any way being used to purchase a cannabis-related business, mm -hmm. um, how are the investment banks going to get comfortable with that? I think, E.G., one can draw a parallel um, to what's happening here to, to what happened in relation to online gaming companies. That would be my other key point. Interesting. Okay. How so? How would you draw that parallel? Well, the online gaming market in the UK is, is significantly ahead of where it is in the US. It's more sophisticated, and, and the UK-based companies are, are dominant globally in a way that US companies are not. And the consensus seems to be the reason for that is that when the gaming industry first emerged, uh, law and regulation developed in the UK and, and in some other places in Europe much more quickly than it did in the US, where the regulatory environment restricted the development of companies. Okay, and has that um, has that continued to be the case? It has. The US market mm. is now catching up, at least in, in regulatory terms. So there was a Supreme Court decision last year which cleared the way for states to allow sports betting. Uh, and, and you'd expect, of course, that, that liberalisation will lead to, to, to new US companies emerging. Mm. However, having established scale and sophistication already, this does present a fantastic opportunity for UK and Irish companies in particular to take advantage of, of the US gaming market liberalising in a way that some of the, the US companies may not be able to. Uh, just for example, Paddy Power Betfair recently identified that the opening of the US online sports betting market has the potential to be the most significant development to occur in the sector since the advent of online um, betting. So it's a huge opportunity for the more established companies. And what does this bit of history teach us about what we might expect to see in the cannabis industry going forward? You know, we, we could well see the reverse occur in relation to the cannabis industry. So, so UK companies uh, and, and companies in other jurisdictions where, where the laws remain quite rigid, having to take a back seat as the American and Canadian companies establish significant market positions and take advantage of the comparatively liberal regulatory regime to scale up. Um, if and when, then the global uh, regulation uh, catches up. So, so other countries liberalise in the same way as the US and, and Canada has, which is far from certain, of course, for, for political and other reasons. Um, then, then businesses in those countries that, that come to the market later uh, may well struggle to compete with the more established global, global players. So if that changes the future, for example, UK startups are more likely to be consolidated into those global market players than being consolidators themselves in the first instance. Great. So definitely a sector to watch in the near future. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Susanna. Thank you, Dinesh. Um, that is it for this week's episode of the Herbert Smith Freehills Capital Markets Podcast. Join us next week for the next episode in this series. Until then, if you have any questions that you want answered on a future episode or just want answered full stop, drop us a line at cmpodcast. That's one word, cmpodcast at hsf.com. Thanks for listening and tune in next week.